Well, good morning, everybody. It's good to see everybody who is here today. We're uh, a bit low in numbers, but uh, your presence is all the more valuable for that. So thank you for coming. And we're going to continue in Mark's Gospel from where we left off last week in chapter 14. Chapter 14 and at verse 53. It was from verse 53 to the end of the chapter, so I'll take time and read the whole of the passage. Mark 14, verse 53. And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witnesses against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, we heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet, even about this, their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway and the cock crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, this man is one of them. But again, he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, certainly you're one of them, for you're a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I don't know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the cock crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the cock crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. And God will bless what we've read from his, from his word. Now, what we'll think to, about uh, this morning uh, and into the early afternoon is injustice. Uh, but injustice that was suffered for justice to be satisfied. Now, you've probably heard of the phrase of a kangaroo court, and we can think of the injustice of a kangaroo court without being political, but just using it as an example. Recently, when uh, the former Prime Minister Boris Johnson was being investigated by the Parliamentary Privileges Committee, he accused them of being a kangaroo court. And uh, Jacob Rees-Mogg, one of his supporters, he, uh, more than one occasion, referred to the members as marsupials. 
which was probably his more sophisticated way of saying the same thing. Now, whatever the rights or wrongs of any of the politics involved is not what matters here. But we know what was meant by these accusations of a kangaroo court, of calling the people involved marsupials, that the committee investigating him had already made up its mind. And they were looking for evidence that would support their case and weren't really looking for evidence to make a true judgment. That was, that was what was behind the allegation. Now, whatever the rights and wrongs, as I say, is not what's important. But we understand that concept, don't we? And we can see how uh, situations can arise. That, a recent one, but you could probably think of others over the years, where a court has been convened with the appearance of propriety that appears to be doing the right thing. It's got the right people there. Witnesses are called. An assessment is made of the evidence and a judgment is reached. An outcome is arrived at. And all along, it was just a ruse. It was just a way of going through the motions without actually trying to get to the truth. And that is what we've read about this morning. If we cast our minds back, if you were here last week, Jesus had been betrayed by Judas uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane. And the, the guards who had come along with the priests to, to take Jesus, we read that they brought him to the high priest. And all the chief priests, the elders and the scribes came together. We read uh, down in verse 55 that the whole council was there. This was the ruling body uh, referred to uh, at the time as the Sanhedrin. And, and these were the rulers, the religious rulers in Jerusalem. And they were the highest court within <coughs> Judaism. And they called witnesses. And Mark tells us a bit about these witnesses. And we can piece some things together from some of the other Gospels as well. But these witnesses, Mark tells us, were called because they were going to bring false <coughs> allegations about Jesus. They were going to come and they were going to say things about Jesus that would put him in a bad light. They would say things that were unkind, things that he had purportedly said that were wrong. And yet, as they pulled these witnesses together, these so-called witnesses, there's two things that are distinct. There's one particular example of what they said that we'll come back to in a moment that was wrong. But in general, twice, Mark says, they couldn't agree amongst themselves. So the witnesses were called, and one witness would say, this happened, and another witness would say something a bit different happened. Now, I've got no experience of being a witness in court. I've been in a jury once, but that's the only time I've been in court. Uh, there are others here with far more experience of being in court than me, um, for the right reasons, I hasten to add. And, um, you know, it's quite possible that people will bring false evidence, but a proper court 
would, would make an assessment that this person and that person that are being called as witnesses, they're not agreeing with one another. There's something suspect here. But that didn't happen here. These false witnesses were allowed to say what they said. And it's interesting when we read of the one thing that Mark records. Uh, we read about it in verse 58. I'm quoting, it says, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I'll build another not made with hands. Yet, even about this, their testimony did not agree. Well, you don't need to turn to it, but I will just for the sake of reading it. That's a reference to something that happened early in the ministry of the Lord Jesus. And, and it's recorded in John chapter 2. And John records, So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you'll raise it up in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So what Jesus had said was, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And these witnesses said, he said he was going to destroy the temple. So that's a simple example that Mark records of false witnessing, false accusations, false things being brought about the Lord Jesus. But you see, what we know and it's, it's less intense in Mark's gospel, but certainly very much recorded in John's gospel, was that the rulers of the Jews, these same chief priests, scribes and the Pharisees, they had decided a long time ago that they wanted rid of Jesus and they had plotted to kill him. Now, just a few verses back, at the beginning of Mark 14, we read about their plot to kill Jesus we read in verse 1, It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. However, they were saying, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. So the people who were convening the court, the people who were responsible for reaching the judgment, the verdict, they'd already made their mind up. And we read about it, if we'd been here a few weeks ago, and if we read John's Gospel, there are about four or five references coming from much earlier in the life of Jesus where the leaders amongst the Jews wanted to kill Jesus. So this was the culmination of this plot of theirs. They had Jesus standing there amongst them and they were hammering him with all sorts of false evidence that didn't even stack up. And the high priest, perhaps realising that these false witnesses weren't doing the good job they were supposed to do. These witnesses weren't quite coming up with the, you know, the silver bullet, to coin the phrase. They weren't really coming up with something solid to lay at, to blame Jesus for doing. And he takes things into his own hands. And the man who should have been the impartial judge starts to lay into Jesus 
by demanding that he answer. And he asks him some questions. To the first, Jesus simply does not answer. He wouldn't lower himself. But the key question, which turned out to be the key allegation on which Jesus was condemned, the high priest said to Jesus, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Are you the one whom God has sent? Are you the one that's been promised the Messiah of the Old Testament? Christ in Greek, the anointed one of God, the Son of the Blessed, the Son of God. Except he wouldn't use the word. So he says the Son of the Blessed. And that's the question he asks. And in his mind, he knows that that's going to be a slam dunk. Because when Jesus starts to think about it, he's going to be saying, well, if I, I've got to say no to this. Otherwise, I'll be condemned to death. And then they would have accused him of being a liar because he had claimed that he was from God. But in fact, Jesus answered the man. And Jesus said, I am. He said a few other things. But the key thing was, in answer to the question, are you the Christ, the Son of God? Jesus said, as he was in trial for his life, I am. And the reason he said it was because it was the truth. It was what he knew to be true. He had come from God. He was the one that the Old Testament had said would come. And here he was, telling the leading priests and face to face with the high priest of the day, saying, I am the Christ. And the high priest was so caught up in his prejudice that instead of following it up with some question that perhaps might be reasonable, like, well, you know, that's, that's interesting. What evidence do you have for it? Can you maybe tell us something to defend yourself? No. He immediately turns and says, well, what more evidence do we need? This man's uttering blasphemy. He's making himself equal to God. He's saying that he's God's Christ, that he is the Son of God. How preposterous. And yet... This was what these people had been waiting for, for the Messiah, the Christ, to come. But so blinded to the truth were these people that they wouldn't accept the facts. The evidence of Jesus' life that showed him distinguished from normal men and women. And they accused him. And he turns and he says to the, the group that's there, over 70 men, What's your decision? And we read, they all condemned Jesus as deserving death. So the key allegation and the basis on which Jesus was condemned 
by these, by this Jewish council, led by the high priest, was that his claim was to be the Christ of God, the very Son of God. And on that basis, they condemned him as deserving death. Now, just as a subtlety, Mark's careful in his words, they didn't condemn him to death. They didn't have the authority to do that in the country at the time. That was reserved to the Romans. They then had to go and ask Pilate for permission. But they condemned him as deserving death. That was their pronouncement. But yet, of all these witnesses that had been there, in contrast to them and their false accusations, Jesus had told the truth. But they didn't want to know. It wasn't blasphemy. But it was their prejudice and the intensity of their rejection of him as God's son that rather than reflect upon this piece of evidence that was presented in court as they should have done, they jumped to condemnation. By their way of it, they were pushing to protect God's integrity and God's righteousness and God's holiness by saying, how can any man claim to be like God? Claim to be God. But the reality was that they were wrong because Jesus was and is the Son of God. The one whom God had sent into the world. And once the condemnation had been made, Jesus was open to abuse and assault. It's a measure of their mindset, isn't it? Now, I, I, I can't imagine it happening. I've certainly never read of it happening that a jury in this country or a judge in this country or a magistrate or whatever having condemned someone to death, started spitting in their face and covering their eyes and slapping them and saying, go and tell us who did it. Because that's what, that's what they were saying. When, when we read there and saying to him, prophesy, we read elsewhere that what they were saying was, prophesy, who struck you? It's not just. It's not fair was indicative of what these people and a lot of others did when they thought they could get the better of God's son. They rejected him as God's son. They slapped him in the face. They spat at him. And they mocked him. And it says that the guard received him with blows. I guess, maybe the, I guess maybe the men who were the priests were a bit too refined to get laid into him with a boot. That was maybe beneath their dignity and a slap in the face was maybe as far as they wanted to go. But the guards didn't have any compunction about beating Jesus with blows. So their judgment, their court, had a predetermined outcome. And despite the evidence being flawed. And despite 
the Lord Jesus having uttered the truth when challenged with the allegation, the accusation, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? They condemned him as deserving death. In the meantime, there's the man of whom we read at the beginning in the second verse that we read, we read, Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. So he was in the courtyard, Peter. He wasn't in the room in which this travesty of a trial was taking place, but he was in the courtyard. And the place was obviously milling with people, going by what we read in the second, second part of the passage. And this servant girl, and who are you? I recognise you. You're, you're one of his. You're a follower of Jesus, is what she was saying. You were with the Nazarene, Jesus. You were with this man from Nazareth. Peter says, of course I wasn't. Put his head down, brought himself at the fire. He pulled his cloak up a wee bit, run about his head. Keep folk from looking. Keep a low profile. But the girl was pretty confident. And we were later, she said to some others that were standing around, that, that fella across there, he's, he's one of them. And they asked him as well. And still, he denied it. And a third time, one of the bystanders this time says to him, you, I'm sure you, you must have been with him. You've got an accent for Galilee. You look like a fisherman. You, you're from up in Nazareth. You're one, of, you're one of his friends. That was the essence of the allegation. And Peter wanted nothing to do with that. And he cursed himself demonstrating to them that he was not to do with Jesus. Effectively, he probably said something like, if, you know, I would be cursed if I was to do with this man, but I'm not. Whatever his words were is not important. The point is, he vehemently denied that he knew Jesus, and he didn't want to do anything to associate himself with Jesus. And Peter as he sat there in the intensity of that atmosphere, with this mock trial taking place in a room inside, up above where he was, he didn't want to associate himself with Jesus. He certainly didn't want to go into that court and say, I can defend this man. I know about him. Ask me about him. I've lived with him for three years. I'll tell you what he said and what he did. He didn't do that. He was too afraid. But the interesting thing is, Jesus was the one of whom we read back in Mark chapter 8, that when the Lord Jesus said to his disciples, who do people say I am? after various answers from the disciples about who people said he was, Jesus said, yeah, who do you say that I am? And Peter declared, you're the Christ. In John's gospel, John expands on it 
And we read there that Peter said, you're the Christ, the Son of God. Remarkable how it's the same as the allegation that the high priest made. The allegation the high priest made, the accusation against Jesus was, are you the Christ, the Son of God? Months, a couple of years earlier, Peter had said to the Lord Jesus, you are the Christ, the Son of God. In his heart, he knew the answer, the truthful answer to the question of Jesus, are you the Christ? Now, he hadn't heard Jesus being challenged, I guess, because he wasn't in the room. But he could have been a witness had they called witnesses fairly. Peter knew the facts, but let's not be, we can't be too unkind in Peter as if we would maybe have been different because we probably wouldn't have been. But he, he wasn't prepared to stand there and defend Jesus in court and say, I've seen this man, I've lived with him, He's remarkably unique. He has done nothing wrong in all the time I've known him. Only good. And he speaks the words of God. And God has revealed to me that he is the son of God. He is God's Christ. Peter knew the facts. He knew that Jesus wasn't blaspheming. And he was outside in that courtyard. And he was denying that he even knew Jesus. And you think, what a sad story for Peter. The man who just earlier that same night had said, no, 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 Jesus, don't, no, don't think we'll desert you. We'll stick up for you right till the end. And he had to be told by Jesus Truly, I tell you this very night, before the cock crows twice, you will deny me three times. Now, Peter might not have laughed out loud. But I can imagine inside he was thinking to himself, no, no way. Not the mood I'm in. But he did. We cast our minds to another disciple, Judas. he betrayed the Lord Jesus. We read of him in the passage last week, if you were here, how he kissed Jesus, said Rabbi and kissed him. And that was the sign that betrayed Jesus, the sign that identified him to the soldiers that had come. And he betrayed Jesus. And we read that he realized, this is Matthew's gospel, he realized that he had betrayed innocent blood. And when he did, he threw the money that he'd been given for the betrayal back to the priests. And he went out and hanged himself. He was seriously messed up, to use a modern phrase. He knew he'd done something wrong. But he wasn't really a follower of Jesus, despite having hung around with the other disciples and been in that inner circle of 12. 
Peter, when he heard the cock crowing the second time, we read the last verse that we read, Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the cock crows twice, you will deny me three times. And as he thought about it, he broke down and he wept. Well, Peter's story went on. And Peter, a couple of days later, was running to the empty tomb with John. He was with the other disciples, albeit locked away for fear of the Jews, when the Lord Jesus, resurrected, came to him, along with other disciples, and said to them, Peace to you. He was with some of the other disciples. <coughs> A short time later, by the shores of the Lake of Galilee, thinking of going fishing again. Because... What was there now? They couldn't spend their time with Jesus. And lo and behold, as they were out there on their boat, they looked to the shore. And John said, that man across there, it's the Lord. Making a fire, cooking fish. Peter jumped in and ran to the shore. And we read at the very end of John's Gospel how Peter had a long conversation with Jesus. I suppose, probably more accurately, Jesus had a long conversation with Peter. And Jesus pushed them and pressed them till we read that Peter said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, follow me. The same summons as he'd made to him at the beginning of his discipleship. But he said, follow me. And Peter did. And the reaction of Peter to not having stood up for Jesus at the time of his trial was quite different than the reaction of Judas who realised that he had betrayed Jesus. He had no faith, Judas. He had no real understanding of what it was to know God, to know Jesus for whom he was. But Peter did. And Peter bitterly regretted that he had denied his Lord. And he repented of it and was forgiven. And he went on to obey him in following him. And we might think, as we thought about earlier, about this injustice. None of us likes to see injustice. Now, sometimes injustice can happen, and we don't know it's happening. Sometimes these mock courts, these kangaroo courts, have the sense of doing the right thing, and we don't realise there's been an injustice. Other times, a proper court can be convened, and its outcome can be flawed. And somebody ends up going to prison for many years for some crime they didn't commit. And then there's great remorse later when the person has to be released because new evidence has been found. So injustice is something that when we hear about it, we don't like it, do we? Now, when we hear about injustice because a mistake was made, 
we think about the poor soul who's been in prison. When we hear about injustice because people conspired and deliberately told lies, we get worked up about it, don't we? And maybe you're feeling, as you listen to this uh, episode that we've thought about, this was all a bit unfair. I'm really angry at this high priest. I tell you, I'd give him a piece of my mind if I could catch a hold of him. But the interesting thing is that what we learn is that God's justice would be satisfied through this injustice. This was not something that was against the plan of God. And later on in our Bibles, if we read in Romans chapter 3, the letter that Paul wrote to Christians who were in Rome, people he'd never met, but of whom he'd heard and he hoped to go and see one day. And he wrote to them about the gospel of the Lord Jesus and how God had been planning to sort out the problem of sin across mankind. And Paul described how people had sinned in all sorts of different ways in the past. We'll go into that in detail. Suffice to say that, and I'll read the verses, he concludes in Romans, what's to us, Romans chapter 3, verse 23 and through 26. In verse 23, he says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And what he was teaching these people in Rome is, yeah, there were folks that did this and there were folks that did that, but at the end of the day, we're all in the same boat. And this high priest did a particularly heinous thing. These priests that should have known better conspired to murder God's Christ, the Son of God. <clears throat> but says Paul, at the end of the day, all have sinned. And the full passage that I was wanting to read is, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, it passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The injustice of that trial was that an innocent man was condemned. If God was to turn a blind eye and to say, oh, you're all forgiven, as the judge, the supreme judge of the universe I pardon you all. You can all get off for all the wrong things you've done. Then that would also be an injustice. And that would apply to you as it would apply to me. But God's justice required that the result of sin, that there was a consequence and that God's wrath had to be satisfied. And we read how God put forward Jesus Christ as a propitiation by his blood 
His blood was shed on the cross. This was the next thing that happened. We'll come to that, if not next week, the following week, Lord willing. And Jesus had been sent. He'd been put forward by God to be the means, a propitiation, the means by which God's wrath would be wholly satisfied because it would be poured out on Jesus in his death on the cross as he shed his blood there so that God's wrath could be satisfied so that those who have faith in Jesus can be forgiven by God and God can remain just. So this great injustice that took place was a precursor. It was one of the events leading up to the very act that enables God's justice to be satisfied and yet his grace in wanting to forgive you, forgive me for all the wrong that we've done to still be achieved. It was always God's plan that his son would offer himself. (coughs) Jesus had submitted to that plan The week before last, we read how in Gethsemane he had said, yet not what I will, but what you will. And just as the Jewish leaders resulted in this condemnation of death that we're thinking about, despite it being undeserved by Jesus, and because of the way in which they subsequently harangued Pilate, the Roman governor, their wishes were granted, and Jesus was crucified, yet... That crucifixion and that death were not the victory that they thought it would be. It wasn't what they intended. It was simply the fulfillment of God's eternal plan for your redemption, for your forgiveness, and for mine. But it's for those who have faith in Jesus. The high priest most definitely did not have faith in Jesus. That's clear. He rejected Jesus' claim to be the Son of God, to be the Christ. On the other hand, Peter did have faith in Jesus. He had accepted, despite his failings on that night, he had accepted and believed that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God. And he committed his life to following Jesus, as Jesus had asked him to do. It's an important question. Who is Jesus? Is he the Christ, the Son of God? Where do you stand in relation to that? Will you, like the high priest and all these others with him, reject him and attempt to stand before God on your own merits? And that's doomed to failure. Or, as Peter did, will you accept him as being the Christ, the Son of God, and follow him, depending utterly on him, on Jesus, on God's Christ. That when you're faced with God's justice and his demands for the right thing to be done, you can say, Jesus died for me, and God will be satisfied, and you'll stand forgiven through faith in Jesus. The contrast is stark. The contrast in the outcomes, it's poles apart. And it'll be your decision that leads to whichever outcome is yours eternally.
for those that choose to trust him, we follow him. That's the expectation, that's the obligation. And we seek to follow him as best we can, albeit like Peter, we sometimes fail. But nonetheless, the forgiveness is assured because it depends on Jesus, not on me. But if you're going to depend on me, on yourself, then scripture makes it abundantly clear that the outcome will be that when God, through Jesus, the man that he has appointed to judge the world in righteousness, makes his assessment, it will justly be that you're deserving of eternal death. Don't choose that route. Choose life. Trust in Christ. Believe that Jesus is the Christ, the one who died for you. Now shall we pray. Our God and Father, we give thanks for your word. We think of the terrible things that happened on that night, but yet they were known to you, they were known to the Lord Jesus that they would happen. And he gave himself willingly. We thank you for his love. We thank you for your grace. And all this so that we might be forgiven. Whilst you would remain just and righteous. And maintain your integrity. We thank you for this. That we do not depend on some temporary blind eye being turned. But we stand. Those of us who have faith in Jesus securely before you, knowing that we've been accepted because of him. We do pray for those who haven't, if any be with us today, that they will seriously think about these matters. And Father, we do pray too that as we would spend some time together, you will bless our time together, and as we would have something to eat, that uh, we might be thankful to you for the goodness of your provision. We thank you again for this provision of food and every blessing that comes from you. But above all, we thank you for your grace and the putting forward of Christ Jesus as a propitiation for sin so that we might have faith in him. We pray that that might be the position of everyone that is here today. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.